Welcome to the Minor Consult, where I speak to the leaders shaping our world in diverse ways. Today, I'm joined by Patrick Collison. He's the co-founder and CEO of Stripe, a technology company that provides payment processing software for e-commerce and powers millions of online businesses around the world. An accomplished entrepreneur, Patrick started his first company as a teenager and has been a leader ever since at the intersection of finance, technology, and the life sciences. I'm delighted to welcome him to the Minor Consult to discuss his journey to becoming an entrepreneur, Stripe's evolution with the changing technological and economic landscape, and his vision for accelerating discovery-based scientific research. Patrick, welcome. It's great to have you here today. Thank you for having me. So, Patrick, you grew up in rural Ireland. Uh, both your parents were entrepreneurs. Um, you, I think, traveled 45 minutes each way to school. From a very early age and still today, you're a voracious reader. How did you get interested in technology? And that will, of course, lead into talking about your companies. But when did you have the inkling that you wanted to, um, to be an entrepreneur, to innovate in technology and, and do the things that you've done? I know, for some reason, I was always just fascinated by the, the concept of computers and the internet and technology. I still remember borrowing books from the local library about the internet. Uh, and, you know, it's funny, the, um, the conception of and depiction of the internet in books from you know, a, a local Irish library in the 90s was very different to what it actually was. All this like cyberspace stuff. It looked kind of like you know the, the movie Tron. Uh, I, you know, I, I thought it was like the metaverse or something. I don't know. It was uh, th these were very strange depictions. Um, but 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 programming these you know machines just seems intrinsically a fascinating concept. Um, and uh, I remember still like designing websites and stuff uh, when I learned what they were like in my notebook. Um, uh, uh, because, uh, you know, at the, again, at the time we didn't have access to a computer. So, so hey, just for some reason, the concept fascinated me. And then we got, we got a computer and we eventually got the internet. Uh, and, um, and my parents actually very, uh, I don't know, graciously or indulgently or something, um, got a, a, a satellite internet connection, um, uh, when I was, when I was 13. Uh, and that was this um, watershed moment in my life. Uh, and uh, I, I still remember the Saturday where I bought a programming book um, and sat down to write my first um, you know, kind of proper code um, and, uh, and was immediately enraptured and just basically have been fascinated by programming ever since. And you wrote your own programming language. You won a national exhibition in Ireland. I even read that at the age of 16, an Irish publication deemed you the brightest redhead in Ireland. Uh, and, um, I don't know if it's a compliment or a backhanded compliment or what. <laughs> well, as a former redhead myself, we, we can relate to that. But, um, but, and then you and John, your, your brother, I think two years younger, uh, started working together on company formation. You you founded your first company. Uh, tell us, can you tell us about that first company? And then, of course, that leads into uh, to Stripe. I had this spare year, so I decided to uh, take a leave of absence from MIT and start a company. And as I was thinking about, you know, who are the smartest people I know, um, uh, or at least the intersection of that set and the set of people, you know, who might plausibly agree to, to, to work on a company with me. You know, I, I thought about various classmates and so on, but, but John, my, my, my younger brother, um, ranked very high on that list. And I thought it'd be kind of fun to work with him. 
uh, and uh, so he, you know, I was, I guess I just turned 18. Um, he was, uh, he was 16. Uh, and so we decided to start this little um, website. Uh, it was going to be basically a, a secondhand used goods marketplace uh, where, I mean, I think this is one of those ideas that young people are often, you know, compelled by because uh, like, you don't have a lot of money. Um, and just like, it's a kind of obvious thing. Like, why is there no liquidity in used items? Uh, it, it feels like there perhaps ought to be more than there is. And I mean, there's kind of Craigslist and stuff, but you know, Craigslist is not exactly, I mean, even in 2006 or seven, Craigslist was not, you know, it, it felt a bit long in the tooth um, uh, as did eBay. So, so we, we started working on that and um, he, he took a, summer off from high school, uh, uh, as he you know, obviously was at the time. Um, and yeah, we went from there. That's great. And then you, you and John started working on Stripe, I think in 2010, launched in 2011. Um, and can you describe, and of course now last year, 2022, I think you processed $817 billion of transactions on Stripe. Can you take us through, you know, the concept of Stripe, uh, how you found the need or how you identified the need, and then what has been so distinctive about Stripe that has made it such a universal payment processing platform? Yeah, so, you know, the, the, the company we are just describing, the first company, the used goods marketplace, it ended up being acquired for a, for a small amount by a Canadian company, um, uh, after which John and I went back to college. Um, uh, we we're both now in college in Boston, and um, and we we're kind of reflecting on the experience with this first company, and we realized that you know we had to set up a company and we had to figure out visas and we had to build a product like we do all these things, uh, and yet kind of one of the most frustrating and um, intimidating parts was getting access to the machinery just charge our customers. Like all we wanted to do was to, you know, have our customers type in their credit card details or whatever, and, you know, we would bill them. Um, but for sort of historical reasons, those billing capabilities were provided by all these legacy players and banks and, you know, you had to like fill out all this paperwork and fax it and parts of it were in Latin and uh, maybe not quite, but like it felt that way. Um, and so, you know, we were kind of in this ecosystem where things were becoming ever more, you know, more... Um, easier to use uh, and, uh, and kind of faster. Like you could set up a server uh, in, in a couple of minutes. You just like, you know, configure what you want, you know, click create and like suddenly magically you have this new virtual server provisioned by one of these new cloud hosting companies. And so it just seems so weird that, you know, you could instantiate, uh, conjure a server in a couple of seconds. And yet these billing capabilities required this really Baroque and kind of um, uh, atavistic feeling uh, uh, sort of intersection or, or, or interaction with, with this other world. And so we, we thought someone must be solving this. And we were like searching around, uh, trying to find the company making this really easy because obviously they must exist, we thought. And, and we just couldn't find anyone doing it. And so we decided to, to build a little prototype kind of for our use and for our friends' use. And we, we did that while we were in school. Um, and we gave access to, um, to, to a couple of people we knew running small little businesses. And it basically just spread through word of mouth uh, where, you know, again, this was our little side project where they said, hey, you know, can you hook up my friend or whatever? And these were small businesses. And, you know, maybe 
hundreds of dollars, maybe thousands of dollars of revenue per week or something, but you know, not, nothing that you would have heard of or that anyone would have heard of really. Um, uh, but it, it kind of, it grew uh, bit by bit through this. And um, we, we decided maybe six months into it, even though we'd conceived of it as our little side project, then there seemed to be a bit more there. And in particular, what we realized is, you know, we initially came to this observing, you know, a, a gap for, I don't know, um, not very sophisticated, you know, um, uh, independent developers, say, like there's no big apparatus behind us. We couldn't just ask, you know, our finance person to go figure this out. You know, there was no finance person. Uh, so, so that's kind of the, the angle we first came at this from. But what we realized is that you, you can also go talk to the largest companies in the world and they too are really frustrated with um, and stymied by the infrastructure that you know they're building on top of. Where for the for the solo person just starting out, maybe yes, the frustration is around the complexity or the or the speed or you know whatever. But for these large companies, they they're really they they, they felt very limited by and frustrated with the inflexibility of these systems, where it was incredibly hard when they changed something about their business to go and to actually like implement that in the real world. Or about the, um, about the, uh, the, the kind of uh, um, the lack of geographic ubiquity, where, you know, if you're accepting credit cards, okay, fine, that works, you know, quite well in the US, somewhat less well in Europe, because a lot of people in, in Europe don't have, have credit cards, you know, in, in right. places like Germany or France, uh, you know, other payment systems are, are you know, much more widely used, not to mention the rest of the world. And so kind of by, by charging cards, you're inadvertently really restricting your set of possible customers in a way that really contravenes the, 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 the kind of the ideals of the internet. Like the whole promise of the internet is it's universally available to everyone. Uh, maybe the exception of, you know, the Great Firewall in China or something. But, you know, broadly speaking, the Internet is geography agnostic. But as soon as kind of money becomes involved, it becomes very specific in a way that's kind of unintentional. So anyway, we realized that, you know, we, we thought we were paddling into this little lake. Uh, but actually, it was this sort of giant ocean uh, where the, the aperture of the, you know, the, the challenges and the problems people faced were, was, was sort of so much larger. Um, and, 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 you know, we kind of see spend lots of time in it and many things have happened. But I think that the core thing that we sort of realized with Stripe is that, yes, while it, it's initially this, this, this payment system for developers, that actually what's going on is the world fundamentally needs sort of upgraded economic infrastructure um, and economic tooling and sort of a platform that's commensurate with the possibilities afforded by the internet and that's not a trivial thing to do because it spans lots of countries and it's very regulated and it's high stakes and there's fraud and compliance, like so much stuff, right? It has to work at an immense scale and security, you know, all the things. But, that, but it's kind of, it's, yeah, it's this question of how do we, how do we enable, um, you know, financial services to intersect with the internet and the cloud and how do we make it globally accessible to everyone? And so for... For, for 13 years now, that's the problem domain we've been swimming in. Yes, and, and you've done it remarkably successfully. And what, what are the attributes of Stripe that has made it so universally adopted and ubiquitous? Um, you, when you think about it, it's analogous to the dominance of search, for example. 
uh, by Google. Uh, but, but what are the features of Stripe that have led to its widespread adoption around the world as you just described? Part of it is the capabilities that were required to, um, to solve the problem suddenly shifted. And a lot of the incumbent actors just, you know, didn't have, uh, hadn't invested in, you know, having those capabilities mm -hmm. over the course of many decades. And it was very difficult for them to suddenly adapt to that. <clears throat> and so concretely, what I mean is, you know, legacy financial services firms who have a lot of capabilities, like they're very smart people there, um, but they're not software companies um, right. and they're not, I mean, we were people who we, we didn't know a lot of things. We have a lot to learn, but we did know developer APIs mm -hmm. uh, and kind of cloud infrastructure super well. Yep. And we were just kind of operating in a moment where actually understanding that stuff was critical for facilitating sort of the next evolution in financial services. Um, uh, in a way that it really hadn't been 20 years previously. Like if we had tried to do something in financial services, you know, in, in, in 1980 with, with the stuff we understood about developer tooling, I don't know, I, I, we wouldn't have gotten anywhere. So sure. I think we were sort of fortunate in the particular capabilities we embodied and, and sort of how the, you know, the, 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 how the ecosystem was, was ripe for uh, evolving um, at that particular moment. And then I, I think, I think part of it's about the, um, I mean, I always hesitate to say this because I think a lot of people and companies say it. I, I think the people who say it generally mean it and it sounds kind of um, a bit self-indulgently virtuous or something, uh, but we, we really try very hard to be very user-centric uh, mm -hmm. in, sure. in how, we, how we operate. And like, that sounds so easy to say, but but it's it's so hard to do, uh, yep. and yep. it's it's this this kind of you know repeated process of self-flagellation. And like you know, it's interesting. After thirteen years, you know, you'd think that Stripe's core functionality would really be pretty honed, and like in certain respects, it is. But you know, we have this concept of friction logs, where you uh, you take some some core flow. Um, you know, for us, maybe it's just setting up a new Stripe account. Maybe for you guys, it's, I don't know, going into the hospital for some, you know, standard, you know, outpatient procedure or something. Um, and you really try hard to adopt a beginner's mind and kind of forget all the context you have as to why things are the way they are. And just note down every little point of even minuscule friction that you have. Yep. Why, why am I being asked again for this piece of information? I've already told you. Um, or... Uh, you know, why, why am I being asked this question that as a beginner, I would have, you know, no idea how to ask, mm -hmm. uh, or why am I being asked to wait for this thing? You know, why can't we just do it instantly? So hey, we have this concept of, of, of friction logs. And part of what's so striking to me is that even after 13 years, it's easy for us to take a core flow and construct a, you know, four page friction log of like all the little things uh, that, 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 that we encounter. We're like, eh, it, it, it really could be better. But I, I think those are great insights. Of course, you're also busy with other endeavors during the pandemic, in addition to leading Stripe. Uh, you also co-founded the ARC Institute, formally launched in late 2021. Um, the ARC Institute is, uh, collaborates with us at Stanford, UCSF, and Berkeley. And Patrick, can you talk about what your thought, you, you have a lot of thoughts on how to fuel, empower, accelerate discovery-based um, research and uh and what drove you to create um, 
a nonprofit research organization, uh, and what's your vision for the ARC Institute and, and what's been the focus so far? Yeah, so um, we, um, well, we, we worked on a project during the pandemic um, called Fast Grants. Yep. And um, we don't need to kind of recapitulate the, the full history of that, but basically what it did was provide, as the name suggests, these you know, really uh, rapid turnaround grants for COVID-related research um, launched in April of 2020 uh, with the goal of uncorking some of the hopefully highest impact or highest potential impact work that could help uh, ameliorate things. And um, we, we learned a couple things from that. Uh, one was, you know, the NIH is, and it might, might seem weird to suddenly invoke the NIH, but you know, for those in the field, of course, you know that the NIH is the hegemon here. <laughs> um, like uh, the NIH is uh, the, 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 the city and you know, we're all building our you know, little buildings and stores and, uh, and cafes and so on uh, in this NIH world. The NIH's budget is $47 billion a year. Um, it's by far the largest science funding entity in the world. It's, it's I guess, as the statement implies, it is also the largest in the US. Uh, and like, people might not know, people listening, that like, for, by comparison, you know, the NSF's budget is like 13 billion. So it's not just like the NIH is bigger, it, it's, it's you know, a significant integer multiple bigger. Yep. Um, so, you know, bio, basic biomedical science uh, in the US is, uh, is, you know, overwhelmingly funded by the NIH. And, and so that means that, you know, the, the, the vibe of our city um, and uh, the zoning and uh, the, the policies and so on are, are, are very substantially informed by, you know, its, uh, its mechanisms. Um, and, you know, those mechanisms are configured for peacetime, so to speak, uh, and not for the kind of exigencies and uh, urgencies of a global pandemic. And so hence Fast Grants made, you know, several, or 190 grants, I think. Um, and uh, and, and we, you know, we're very happy with some of the work that was able to uh, enable. So what we learned from that was, well, um, that, there, there are opportunities to do things that the NIH might not be itself configured for. And, and that's fine in that like no single organization can be configured to do everything. Um, uh, you know, no matter how well put together it is, um, you know, like um, it's, it's, uh, it has a shape um, uh, and there'll be, there'll be opportunities sort of around it. So th that was the first thing we learned. Um, and then the second thing we learned is we had kind of an intuition around this, but it was very interesting, you know, because Fast Grants afforded us the opportunity to work with, you know, hundreds of different scientists. And um, that a surprisingly high fraction of scientists reported that they would be doing something somewhat different um, if they were not constrained by that which they could get funded for. And in particular, um, uh, we, we, we surveyed um, uh, you know, several hundred scientists and I want to get this figure right, but it was basically four out of five scientists told us that what they were doing would change a lot. Uh, if not, if they'd more money, but if they had money that they could spend however they wanted, because mm -hmm. grant money, you know, kind of, it's, it's project based. It comes kind of right. for a, for a specific agreed upon purpose in mind. Um, 
And so the, these two ideas and kind of seeing that fast grants, you know, seeing the, the, the sort of, I mean, fast grants was not transformative or anything, but just kind of having some experience with the domain made us think, well, hmm, maybe, maybe there would be interesting kind of medium term opportunities um, that are, that are sort of related to this. And so the basic idea of ARC is it, um, it's a, it's, it's a research institute, as you said, uh, the building is next to Stanford, um, on, uh, just off Page Mill, uh, in Palo Alto. And it pulls together, uh, biomedical faculty, um, in partnership with these three universities, um, uh, that, that you just mentioned. Um, and it'd be remiss of me not to you know, give, uh, you and Stanford, uh, an acknowledgement for, for being so formative in the earliest conception of this. Uh, and, you know, uh, ARC would not be here, um, you know, without your, uh, without your, your own innovative disposition um, and willingness to try something new. So, so we're very grateful for that. Um, but anyway, so ARC pulls together these faculty and funds them without regard to, um, funds them for curiosity driven research where they don't have to tell ARC what they're going to do. Um, uh, they can, like, they set the research agenda. Uh, and then secondly, where um, ARC provides these in-house technology platforms that they can take advantage of and build on top of. And so at Stripe, you know, if you want to, um, I, I breakfast this morning uh, with one of our engineers uh, who works on our, uh, on the recurring billing infrastructure. Uh, that hundreds of thousands of companies use to manage their subscriptions. And this guy, when he wants to go and do something, you know, with machine learning, Stripe has all this, you know, this infrastructure built up that makes it, you know, really easy and fast for him to go and experiment with something and see if it's going to help and to, you know, to, to, uh, to then deploy it at scale if it does, et cetera. Now, uh, within the university, it's, it's typically the case that, you know, you have to kind of aggregate all those capabilities inside your own lab. Uh, yes. There isn't sort of uh, yes. the, the same kind of idea of, um, of, of, you know, infrastructure teams that you can collaborate with. Uh, and so the second thing that ARC does is for, for certain areas like certain animal models uh, or for functional genomics or certain kinds of microscopy and so on, uh, or indeed software engineering, uh, we either do or will um, have those teams internally uh, so they can kind of then collaborate with the faculty on their curiosity-driven agendas. So uh, ARC actually just moved into its, uh, its first kind of proper formal headquarters uh, about um, two weeks ago. Uh, and uh, and we're, we're, we're very excited about that. It's about 100 people today um, and running the, the first external uh, open faculty searches now. Um, so we're, yeah, we're excited where it's going. It's very exciting. What, looking forward 10 years from now, um, and, and I think you, Patrick, you did a great job of describing it, what I think listeners will see is the parallels between sort of the needs identification process that led you and John to start Stripe, and, and you spoke about that very eloquently before, and now the needs identification process that led you to co-found the ARC Institute and, and bringing together uh, people who are technology experts along with uh, information scientists, data scientists, and then discovery-driven scientists, but to have the resources available for discovery-driven scientists in ways that the wheel doesn't have to be invented you know, every time a new scientist sets up their lab. Exactly. Uh, and, and so 10 years from now, what's, what's the life sciences ecosystem going to look like? Um, how... I think we all have, uh, those of us in the field have the collective sense this is a, we're, we're in a unique inflection point in history 
uh, for the life sciences. But also sometimes I feel like for reasons you just mentioned, uh, grant systems, which are absolutely essential and, and funding from the NIH and, and the NSF, although you pointed out this, this integer, uh, significant integer-based difference in funding level for the NSF, which one would hope the NSF would be, would be better recognized in the funding landscape over time um, or even immediately. Uh, but, but even within, that, within those structures, understandably, the, the work is going to largely remain project-based. So what can we hope for in having uh, the ARC Institute, other endeavors like Chan Zuckerberg Biohub, and a lot of, of tech entrepreneurs uh, have become interested in life sciences, I was wondering what your perspective is on this uh, in terms of what we can hope for from ARC, but also this broader ecosystem that uh, tech entrepreneurs are helping to establish in life sciences and where that's going to lead over the next decade. I mean, the, the, the body is this, um, is this uh, you know, complex adaptive system uh, with all of this, you know, the, the, this crazily intricate uh, evolved complexity. And we have, over the last couple of years, you know, massively advanced this amazing technology for understanding um, in kind of a black box-ish fashion such complex systems, i.e. machine learning and, and, and deep learning and transformers. And so I think the, the like, uh, I, th I think you can't but be excited about the prospect for the, the sort of the set intersection here. And obviously we're already seeing a whole bunch of, you know, really... Um, interesting results uh, stemming from that, um, especially when that's coupled with uh, you know some of the advancements we're making in uh, in sequencing, whether that's RNA sequencing or single cell sequencing um, or sort of other forms of quasi digital kind of characterization uh, and the ability to kind of generate these new data sets um, and to uh, and to um, you know be able to configure them in such a way that we can then bring the power of, of, uh, of ML to bear is, 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 is super encouraging. So excited about that. Um, there are, you know, there's always the kind of tantalizing prospect of major new population-wide data sets being generated. You know, we all have smartphones yep. and, um, and there are, you know, various new devices coming to market that, you know, provide interesting new forms of telemetry. Obviously that's always, you know, it's never quite as good as we want because of, you know, HIPAA or because of just like, you know, the, 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 the fracturing of the data sets and so forth. But like in, in a way that, you know, wasn't the case, say, 30 years ago, you can at least imagine running a significant kind of population wide, um, you know, correlational analyses to try to at least generate hypotheses. Um, you know, uh, CRISPR is obviously correctly um, seen as a really big deal from a therapeutic standpoint. Um, and, you know, we, we um, the, 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 there's lots of cool pro um, progress there, although obviously the delivery remains a challenge. But um, I think CRISPR, by you know people in my field, i.e., you know, technology, like uh, not, uh, people outside of biology, um, underestimate uh, the extent to which CRISPR is interesting as a as a telescope um, mm. and you know CRISPR screens and things like yep. that. Um, and so it's like it's 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 not yeah just useful as like a way to fix things. It's it's useful as sort of a as a data generator, um, and uh, and I think I think um, yeah, CRISPR is kind of a new way to interrogate cells uh, is, uh, is 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 super interesting. 
Um, something I've been struck by, just kind of getting back to the heart of your question, is I do think despite Silicon Valley, you know, um, despite the Silicon Valley software sector being in Silicon Valley, and despite Silicon Valley being one of the, let's say, two great biomedical research centers uh, in the world, uh, alongside, you know, Cambridge slash Boston, um, there's a surprisingly wide gulf between the, the, the two groups. And it's funny, yeah. Stripe is headquartered now in South San Francisco, uh, next to Genentech and Cytokinetics and like a whole bunch of these biotech companies. Um, and, you know, it's always reminding me that you, you, you can spend a long time in the Silicon Valley software ecosystem and not even realize necessarily that biotech in the Bay Area is as preeminent as it is. Yep. Um, and look, I, I, uh, Silvana, um, you know, my wife and one of ARC's uh, other co-founders, um, uh, who herself is a professor at, you know, at Stanford in the, in the biochemistry department, um, like I would not have... Like, I, you know, I would not be doing ARC uh, uh, absent her. I wouldn't have known what to sure. do. Um, and so, you know, we have a very kind of particular way to kind of bridge that, that cultural divide. But something we often talk about is, is you know, what are the opportunities to, to do more of that? And to, uh, I mean, now I think because of the ML things we just discussed, I think there's more interest in an appetite among the biomedical people to kind of have the software expertise um, and just given the fact that we're all humans, I think there's an innate intrinsic uh, uh, interest from the, the software folks in, uh, in better understanding biology. But again, despite us kind of bumping into each other at Koopa Cafe or rather <laughs> passing by each other at Koopa Cafe, right. I think the, uh, the you know, it's, it's like, you know, high energy physics where you, you have all these, uh, these, these like scattering experiments, um, but it's kind of very sensitive to the parameters. You know, do you fly through the material or, you know, do you actually, do you actually interact where, you know, how can we, how can we how can we have more interaction you know among all these kind of bay area molecules if we transition just for a moment to your thoughts on leadership so patrick you you co-founded your first business as a teenager and you've been leading organizations ever since and i'm curious how you feel your personal leadership style has evolved over the years and what key experiences have contributed to your growth as a leader well i'm probably the worst person you know to, to ask that question of um, <laughs> uh it's 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 so hard to um I think it's so hard to introspect honestly um, <laughs> uh, 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 on those dimensions. Um, early on, I thought of um, I thought of attributes of my leadership as much more reflections of my inner nature, mm -hmm. and obviously, it's it does to some extent reflect me. Uh, and like, you know, if, if I have bad judgment, say, uh, then like, does that mean that kind of I in my leadership mode have bad judgment or does it mean just like I have bad judgment uh, uh, and it's, it's hard to kind of fully say the former. So, I'm, you know, it's, how I lead does reflect kind of who I am and my capabilities and understanding and so on, uh, you know, to, to some meaningful extent. Having said that, I, I think it's helpful to, to be able to decouple them to some extent. And I feel like I've gotten much more curious over the years, like kind of genuinely curious about the ways that my leadership could and should be better. Um, and, you know, a, a friend once used with me the, the analogy of sort of a mech suit uh, where um, they, uh, they, they, they kind of think when they go to work, they're like donning this mech suit. Uh, and when somebody points out a deficiency in the mech suit, 
like they're, they're just the person using it. And so they can kind of be on the same side of the table and you're pointing out, it's like, oh yeah, the, you know, there is that kind of weird dent in the arm. You know, that, that's not great, you know? Um, and, you know, maybe a max suit is a bad analogy because the idea is not that you want to be sort of defensive um, or pugilistic. Uh, it's that it's something you wear um, and wield uh, as opposed to, you know, what you yourself intrinsically are. Uh, and so I think maybe when I was, you know, 22 or something, something I was doing poorly, you know, I, I, I thought, yeah, it was, was necessarily reflective of a deep character flaw that I had. Uh, whereas now I think it's, uh, you know, um, it's, it's a way in which my golf swing, I don't play golf, but, but, you know, in which my golf swing is deficient. Um, uh, and you know, that's fine. And I'm, I'm eager to know what those things are and you know, try to keep a list of them and get better at them. And, uh, and, you know, yeah. Um, coming to appreciate that separation, I think, has, has made me much more open to feedback, which in turn has hopefully uh, helped me uh, improve somewhat. Well, I think you just summarized, Patrick, why you're such a great, impactful leader, uh, being able to have that insight and um, being able to be as reflective as you are and, and uh, as well as as accomplished as you are in uh, in your day jobs. And your day jobs are many now. With So you've, you've started an internet business, uh, businesses, uh, an institution focused on biomedical research, and now Frontier, which aims to accelerate carbon removal technologies by guaranteeing future demand for them. And uh, in a sense, these seems like seem like very different companies taking on different challenges. Um, but I know that there has to be a unifying theme. Um, and can you share with us what that theme or those themes are uh, that have led you uh, in these different, but I suspect very related. Uh, directions. Um, well, I have a very deep belief in um, in the importance of um, of scientific and economic advancement, uh, and you know, the world is much less prosperous than it should be, uh, and it's much less prosperous. Partly because um, you know economic infrastructure in the broadest sense is not something we get for free, and you know the, the broadest conception of economic infrastructure includes you know legal systems and cultural habits and you know the trust in a society, and also yes it's 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 actual mechanical tooling, which is you know part of what stripe provides um, and uh, you know fiscal and monetary policy you know the, 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 this whole thing. Um, but you know, the, the, the median income in the world is still, you know, it's a little hard to get, you know, fully true, robust global statistics, but it's almost certainly under $10,000 and you know, that, that, that matters, right? Um, most people are living lives that are, uh, vastly less, um, less, you know, uh, prosperous than say those of us here in the Bay area. And, and there's no law, you know, there's no physical law as to why that has to be the case. Uh, and so I think we should kind of really take seriously and bang the table a bit uh, around, you know, the, the urgency of, uh, of, of correcting that. And then part of the reason that, you know, we're not all as well off as we kind of like to be or that we don't live lives that are as you know, wholesome as we would hope is because we, we just don't have the knowledge, right? Uh, like, we don't know how to... Um, give everyone in the world the same energy budget that you or I have without also destroying the planet. Um, and that, that's like a knowledge problem. Again, we're pretty convinced it's possible. We just don't know how to do it. Um, 
we don't know how to remove the CO2 from the atmosphere uh, that we will need to remove if our current climate models are correct and if our current emissions trajectory, uh, even assuming we do eventually decarbonize, uh, remains what it is. Uh, and obviously your world, you know, there are, I mean, I'm guessing hundreds of people, um, uh, at least dozens, maybe hundreds of people, you know, uh, uh, present at, um, you know, across the, the Stanford healthcare system every day with a disease that we are conditioned, we basically don't know um, how to cure. And like, maybe we know some things to, you know, help ameliorate it a bit or something, but where we like, I mean, I don't know, take type two diabetes, right? Um, like we can manage it for sure, um, but can we cure it? I mean, that's, it's, it's unclear, right? Um, uh, and that's not, you know, some uncommon obscure thing. Uh, and, and obviously, I mean, just go down the list of the, of, of, you know, the, the, the most common conditions. And, uh, and, um, I think, I think the, the, um, the, the set of things we don't know, particularly in medicine is just so much larger than the set of things we do. Uh, so, which is, which is also exciting, right? And, and, yeah. and the opportunity, but so, so hey, so to, to your question, so, you know, what's the common theme? I mean, look, I, I don't know that I have a grand theme, but I would say I am, I am captivated by, uh, the, the sort of dual importance of, you know, uh, expanding the set of what we do know, um, and then um, more broadly kind of disseminating and enfranchising the, 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 this, this, um, you know, this, this basic economic, um, I don't know, the, 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 the liberty and the prosperity that we benefit from. Um, I, think it, I think it really matters. Oh, it certainly does. And Patrick, I want to end with two questions that I ask all my guests. First, what do you think are the most important qualities for a leader today? So I think two things are different today. Um, you know, caveating with whatever, you, you know, I'm, I'm one random person. But um, social media and the, the glare and occasionally the mob dynamics uh, where, you know, something can, you know, uh, a... Um, you know, a, 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 a small little, um, you know, a, a few smoldering embers can swiftly become, you know, a, a sweeping conflagration. Uh, so, so one, that. And then two, I'm always a little bit skeptical of this because there's a bit of, this is what people always say, but there's a lot of suggestive evidence that there are very significant generational differences um, uh, kind of in sheer forces at play today. Yes. Where um, expectations among different cohorts are wildly different. And um, and actually I was speaking with somebody, uh, I won't name them, but but somebody who's taught at Stanford for a long time um, uh, this week. Um, and she was saying that, you know, that, that it is extraordinary to her um, how different undergrads on campus are today as compared to uh, undergrads uh, in the 90s. And she was not saying that that's a uniformly bad thing. Yeah. Um, uh, she, she said that she thinks the desire to kind of do something of significance in the world is, in her view, greater today uh, than, uh, that, 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 than she observed that as being in the 90s. But she said that, um, that, uh, that the ability to engage uh, with um, dissenting um, or sort of unpleasant arguments uh, is substantially reduced. And, you know, no one person's assessment can be taken as gospel, but there's enough suggestive data points. And Jonathan Haidt has marshaled all sorts of, you know, longitudinal time series and so on. And you can even look at um, the, the, the self-reported data from the people themselves. 
Yeah. Uh, and in CDC data uh, among uh, you know adolescents, uh, the self-reported uh, feelings of sadness and hopelessness, you know, have have massively increased. Um, and so, yeah, I think the two challenges for leaders that I observe in all my conversations are, um, you know, the ability to and the I mean, I don't just want to say courage because it's not just that. It's like because some of these dynamics are very complicated. But let's just say the ability to keep a an even keel given the mob dynamics around um, uh, and to to not capitulate uh, and to not do things that you know are actually a bad idea because you feel this kind of intense pressure from those around you. Um, and then, which, which is so hard to resist. Um, and then secondly, you know, figuring out how to deal with these generational dynamics. I think those are the two big things. That's great. My final question is what gives you hope for the future? Um, I don't know that, um, well, you know, there's, there's the line that, um, when you think about the future, it's easy to feel like a pessimist uh, or to become <laughs> pessimistic because the, the, the current day challenges and problems are so salient. But then when you look at history, you become an optimist because you're like, man, we've come so far. Um, and so I find history very interesting. Um, and I, I'm, I'm struck that, um, yeah, it's yeah, I, I, you know, you have to you have to kind of uh, be willing to adopt an extraordinarily acute present exceptionalism to think that the future will not be substantially greater than the past, uh, given uh, that the dynamics that have made twenty twenty three possible um, have uh, have been you know have delivered such durable improvement. Uh, in standards of living for several centuries now. And it's in principle possible that, you know, that could somehow, you know, uh, inflect and, and reverse, but it seems unlikely. So, so I, I maintain my basic optimism uh, about the, uh, the historical forces propelling us forward. And that, you know, while yes, we have all sorts of challenges and problems today, um, uh, you know, it's, um, uh, as, as, as you assemble the, the, the you know, we, our country has had civil war. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, we have faced world war. Like, you know, yeah. we, we, have, we have, there were you know, several thousand domestic bombings in the early 70s. Uh, so um, whatever challenges we face today, it's not clear to me that you would necessarily put them in even the top 10 uh, that, that our country has faced uh, in, uh, in, say, the past 150 years. Um, and so, yes, I would say that the, um, the, the, the possibility of the advancement of, um, of, um, of prosperity and uh, our knowledge are intrinsically exciting. And I'm, in fact, hopeful that we will succeed in doing so based on, you know, casting a look backwards. That's wonderful. Patrick, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to The Minor Consult with me, Stanford School of Medicine Dean Lloyd Minor. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation with Patrick Collison, co-founder and CEO of Stripe. Please send your questions by email to theminorconsult at theminorconsult.com and check out our website, theminorconsult.com, for updates, episodes, and more. To get the latest episodes of The Minor Consult, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please rate the podcast five stars. 
Your feedback helps make this podcast happen. Thank you so much for joining me today. I look forward to our next episode. Until then, stay safe, stay well, and be kind. Be kind.